Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. New readings are added weekly from our archive, and the service is available 24-7 at no charge. Today's article is a memoir by Percy Muir of Ian Fleming, our founder. It was published in our issue for spring 1965 and is read here by Rupert Van Sittart. Among the things on which I differed with my seniors when I was at Dulaus was the stocking of new books. I contended that, from our point of view, they were not worth their house room. They argued that, although they were well aware of this, a show of new books brought people into the shop, and this had to be admitted. But I remarked that, whereas our old book customers sometimes bought new books as well, I had seldom, if ever, seen a visitor graduate from new books to old. When we moved from Cavendish Square to Bond Street, my arguments were reinforced by a rental, huge for those days, of £2,000 a year and a similar sum for rates, but they were unavailing. I have no doubt now that in this respect, as in others, they knew their own business best, and it is quite certain that if I had had my way, I would have missed one of the longest and most fruitful friendships of my whole life. Ian Fleming was attracted into the Bond Street shop by what Leslie Chaundy's neatly written ticket described as the new D.H. Lawrence. This must have been in 1929, and the book was Pansy's. He asked my opinion of it, and when I had given it, asked whether my enthusiasm was prompted by salesmanship or idolatry. I replied, neither or both that while I thought Lawrence might conceivably be the greatest living writer of English, I found his characters and ideas frequently detestable. This seemed to strike the right note. We went on to discuss other authors, and quite a pile of books began to mount up, which apparently the new visitor was prepared to take. We spent the whole morning talking, and eventually lunched together. He was engaged for dinner, but we met again later in the evening and talked until the early hours of the morning. Mostly, as I recall, we talked about me and my job, and Fleming, younger than I was by more than ten years, drew me on into a vain attempt to explain to him just what first editions were all about. It was then, perhaps, that I learned for the first time that most forms of collecting are not primarily defensible on rational grounds. Do you mean to say, for example, Fleming asked me, that when that D.H. Lawrence book I bought this morning is reprinted, my copy will immediately and automatically be worth more than I gave for it? I replied that this could happen. Such things had been known to happen, but that special circumstances would have to arise for this to be possible. I asked him if he had never collected anything, and from the advanced age of twenty or so, he replied that yes, when he was a child, he had collected stamps, cigarette cards and so on, but he had grown out of that. He also did not fail to point out that there was a Freudian explanation of the collecting habit, and I replied that I was aware of it, but that I found it a. unnecessarily complicated, and b. faintly disgusting. 
He was returning in a few days to Geneva where he was studying at the university and I did not see him again before he left England. He had commissioned me, however, to send him any new books that I thought he might like to read. On this and on kindred subjects we corresponded sporadically thereafter until he wrote in the following June to ask if I'd made any plans for a summer holiday. If not, would I be prepared to consider joining him for two or three weeks in Austria? He had his Morris Cowley two-seater in Geneva, and if I would make my way there, he could promise me an amusing holiday at a modest cost. He was, it appeared, studying with a view to entering the diplomatic service, and it was typical of his naturally unorthodox personality that he learned his German in Munich and Vienna, and was now improving his French in Geneva. Russian he acquired later in London, only Italian did he learn in its native land. His command of these languages was extensive and his pronunciation impeccable, which was the more remarkable in that he had no ear for music. While he was in Vienna, he got to know Phyllis Bottom and her husband A.E. Forbes, and had often been invited to stay with them in their summer villa at Kitzbühel, then a resort almost exclusively Austrian before the shishi bestowed by the favour of the Prince of Wales and its subsequent degeneration into a posting house on the route of every Tour de Grand or Petit Luxe, which prompts old hands passing through to send one another picture postcards on which is written the one word Ichabod. We would not climb any mountains that were not gewirtschaftet, Fleming wrote. He could rent for a derisive sum a flat with two bed and one recep over the ski workshop in the centre of the town, and so on and so on. I accepted at once. Dates were fixed, and he was to pick me off the train at Geneva on a given date at 6.30am. I would bathe and breakfast at his flat overlooking the lake at Mies, and thereafter we would set off. If I thought better of it at the last moment and he did not find me at the station, there was always time the great healer. This is not the place to detail the riotous success of that holiday. Although I was considerably his senior, Fleming took complete charge. This was perhaps to have been expected. He had arranged the whole thing. Our visit centred on the large group of his Austrian friends in Kitzbühel. This is what he liked doing. He liked to arrange and manage things according to his own ideas. He made a better captain than a lieutenant, and I'm sure that a considerable inducement to authorship in his case was that authors are self-employed. He was extremely fond of the company of women and was constantly entangled with them. In Kutzbühel there were already three entanglements, one past, one present and one about to begin. Two of these three were still his friends when he died. Yet he remained a bachelor until he was over 40, and this too was because of his reluctance to delegate any part of his life. By the time Ian returned to England to crown for the diplomatic entrance examination, I had left Dulaus to join Elkin Matthews. I had made no further onslaught on his unpromising attitude towards book collecting, but a change of standpoint gradually appeared and I began to suspect that the views he had previously so trenchantly expounded were in part provocative. One of his first requests in 1929 had been to find out all about transition. Eventually he subscribed to it, and there should be a complete set scattered around in his library. He could never be persuaded to bring it together in one place. Some of it was always in the country and some in London. 
He was greatly impressed by the spectacular rise in the prices of modern first editions in the late 1920s, the sequel to which phenomenon is just now much in the minds of old fogies like me. I was, however, rather surprised when Ian told me that at his interview he had given his hobbies as golf and collecting first editions. I gathered that he'd been disconcerted when his interlocutor found both hobbies highly conventional. At Dulau's, little attention was paid to the personal element. Indeed, until I went there, it was only rarely that even American visitors were invited to a meal and my own modest expense account was a source of constant bickering with the chairman. A.W. Evans, my new chief at Elkin Matthews, had quite another view on this. The evening sherry party that he instituted at the shop after closing time was one example of this, and here Ian was introduced to the partners. He was always a little abashed by Evans, but he took to the others, old Etonians, to a man, and especially to my great pleasure, he and Greville Worthington became close friends. Ian did not take up a diplomatic appointment, but joined the staff of Reuters. He was their correspondent in Moscow during the trial of the Vickers engineers. His mother was displeased by this choice of a career, and the family banking interests were invoked to induct him first into a merchant bank and later into a firm of stockbrokers. Despite his avowal at his interview, Ian was only playing at collecting, but his senior partner, Hugo Pittman, a devoted collector of drawings and paintings, constantly urged upon him the delights of collecting. The question was what to collect. Books, of course, but first edition collecting as such really made little appeal to him. He was greatly interested in fine printing. His subscription to topography had a considerable sequel when, as personal assistant to the Director of Naval Intelligence during the war, he had Robert Harling, the editor of topography, whom he had not previously known, tracked down and brought home from active service at sea for the express purpose of giving a new look to a semi-secret official journal circulated to naval officers. Thereafter, Robert joined the very special staff recruited by Ian, and another lifelong friendship resulted. Robert wrote a long and perceptive obituary of Ian in the Sunday Times. Ian did not take up topography as a collecting interest, however. He struck out in an unexpected and initially rather disconcerting direction. In the mid-1930s, he proposed that I should spend for him £250 that he had made on a stock exchange deal. He wanted me to find for him books that marked milestones of progress, books that had started something. There would be the first book on zip fasteners, the first book on golf, bicycles, motorcars, aeroplanes... There was to be no limit to the scope of the idea, except that nothing published before the year 1800 would qualify. He was not prepared to do any research. That was for me to do. I would have to convince him of the qualifications of any book suggested for inclusion. Clearly, with such a vast range of material on the one hand and the comparatively small sum of money available, a principal qualification for any book would have to be its modest cost. Beyond a general interest in these things, such as any reader of average intelligence might show, I was completely lacking in a sufficient acquaintance with technology even to know where to look for the necessary instruction. A £250 order in those lean days was a godsend, and I was determined to make a success of the assignment. I remember sweating my way through books like De Technique, 
an encyclopedia of technology compiled by F.M. Feldhaus, which confirmed the discouraging conviction that inventions were usually patented and a collection of patent specifications would surely be unspeakably dull. Further reading indicated a broader view of the subject, and Ian agreed that the first things to go for were the great scientific discoveries and historically important pronouncements of reformers and philosophers. A bulging shelf thus became added to my reference library, but no purchases had yet been made for the collection. The difficulty here was a very real one. Books in this field addressed to my level of intelligence were poorly documented when they were documented at all. The books that were documented were mostly above my head, and it was sometimes virtually impossible to pin down the contribution I was looking for. There was one notable exception to this general rule, Garrison's History of Medicine, then in its third edition. Perhaps I should make it clear that such bibliographies as Garrison and Morton on medicine or Weil or Einstein had not yet appeared, and the pioneer was indeed a lonely pathfinder. Nevertheless, lists were compiled and the search was on, although at first when I approached the specialists in medical and scientific books I found an almost total lack of interest. To them, first editions were largely out-of-date textbooks to be thrown away. Their clients wanted the most up-to-date editions. There were exceptions, like Hans Tauber, then in Munich, announced Weil in London, and from them I made many of the earliest purchases for the Fleming collection. The search also added a welcome tag to my foreign trips in search of early music. It is, moreover, not altogether true that the field was entirely a barren one at Elkin Matthews. Thus I was able to produce from stock, for example an excellent copy of On the Origin of Species for £10. In view of the great interest now shown in these books and their current high prices, it may be of interest to mention some of the prices of 30 years ago. Röntgen's two original papers on the X-rays, 1895-96, cost £7.10. shillings. Madame Curie's two doctorate theses of 1903, announcing her isolation of radium, £4.00. A group of cock material, including off-prints of his papers on growing and staining bacilli, 1877 and 1878, and his discovery of the tubercular bacillus, 1882, in one lot, £5. Freud, die Traumdeutung, £4, and so on. We were both mightily impressed with the cheapness of these books. Here was clearly a very blind spot indeed, and while I decided to deal in them generally, Ian withdrew the limit and gave me what was virtually an open-ended contract to buy them for him. He made no secret of the fact that there was a large financial element in his decision, an investment out of which more amusement and kudos were obtainable than from share certificates. Unfortunately, when his financial horizons broadened, the sums represented by books were chicken feed to him, and he gave up collecting them. The specimen prices mentioned above show that the investment was a good one, and even later, when he shuddered at the prices that I bullied him into paying, this was still true. £94 for what has fortunately turned out to be the earliest printing of the Communist Manifesto, for example. The odd price here is due to his beating me down £6 on the asking price. The collection now began to grow quickly as my wants list grew in length. 
Some were handed out to selected runners and their help was invaluable, especially in finding odd volumes of scientific transactions containing significant papers. It soon became necessary to analyse the plan of campaign more critically, and Ian decided to add literature to the list of subjects. This was against my advice, not because I did not think that literature belonged in such a collection, but because even in the 1930s it could not be encompassed on the same price scale and because the money spent on it would hinder the development of the collection as a whole. I was now desperately keen on rounding this out, and I had a feeling that Ian's enthusiasm would run out before mine. Another decision that I regretted was to have a black buckram box made to hold every book with a large coat of arms on the side in gilt and a leather titling piece of a special colour according to the section into which it fell. Here also I grudged the money spent on boxes instead of books, especially as they do not look well on the shelves. However, my main feeling was, and is, of gratitude. Not merely for the fact that it helped to keep the firm alive at a most desperate time, but also because of the increasing depth and breadth of its interest. This assignment of Ian's was one of the main influences in changing the outlook of Elkin Matthews to the extent that the firm's current catalogues bear hardly any resemblance to those of the Evans period. It would be invidious for me to speak too highly of the collection, suffice it to say that its formation is one of the proudest achievements of my life. Ian also introduced me to Gerald Cook when the latter was about to embark on collecting 18th century harpsichord music. This eventually resulted in my close participation in the formation of a Handel collection of major importance, possibly the finest and most extensive collection of its kind in existence. It has been marked down for inclusion in our Contemporary Collectors series. When things began to go seriously wrong at Elkin Matthews, a story that I partially told in Minding My Own Business, it was this kind of support that kept our heads above water. Our former clients were mostly out of the market, and my working partners had mostly abdicated. Ian and the friends he brought to me, together with the close cooperation of John Carter as Scribner's agent, kept the firm alive. When we could no longer keep going on the old basis, it was Ian who told me that Worthington, with whom I'd almost lost touch, was bored with city life and would jump at the chance of returning to the book trade. Worthington did return, bought out the other interests in the firm, and provided a little extra capital to make the wheels run a little more easily. This left only the two of us in the business. Our articles of association called for three directors, however, and Greville and I immediately decided to qualify Ian for that position, and from 1936 onwards his name, in alphabetical order, headed the list of directors. Greville was full of enthusiasm for a time, but the unrewarding, hard, continual uphill slogging of our lot in those days did not appeal to him, and long before the wayward bullet of a naval sentry laid him low in 1942, we were negotiating for me to take over his share of the business. Meanwhile, I carried on mostly alone with the small, faithful staff below stairs in Duke Street St James's in the final stage, waiting for Ian's signal from his Admiralty hideout that it was time to evacuate myself and the best of the stock to my home in the Essex backwoods. "'I don't want you to have to wait until the balloons go up,' he said, referring to the anti-aircraft devices that were part of London's defences. 
During the war, he found time more than once to visit the firm and its sole owner in the country. Once he turned up unexpectedly at night and slept in the office on a camp bed kept for emergencies. It was Ian also who gave me the sad news of poor Greville Worthington's needless death and who arranged for permits for me to attend his burial at sea off the coast at Dover. His financial counsel in the acquisition of the remaining interest in Elkin Matthews was invaluable. After the war, he joined the Kemsley newspaper group as foreign manager. He was much more than that, however, and when Lord Kemsley was persuaded to set up the Dropmore Press, Ian passed on my very critical reports on what I considered to be its very mistaken policies. These criticisms extended to a proposal to acquire Book Handbook. I thought it greatly preferable to start afresh with an entirely new journal. In effect, this was what eventually happened. In 1952, the Dropmore Press was replaced by the Queen Anne Press with Ian, John Hayward and myself on the board. The journal was given a new name, The Book Collector, and we were all greatly exercised by the need to get out our first number as quickly as possible as part of our determination to shed Book Handbook's unfortunate reputation for irregularity. The first issue was rather hastily scratched together from material lying about it in the office, but John Haywood immediately made his presence felt by introducing new features on bindings and autographs, which have continued ever since under their initiators Howard Nixon and T.J. Brown. He also incorporated the defunct bibliographical notes and queries, the entries in the first number of which were taken largely from material that have remained in the editor's file ever since the pre-war decease of that modest publication. I contributed a personal memoir of my old chief, A.W. Evans, which had been running in my mind for many years and was already to be written down. The further history of this journal was ably and succinctly reported by John Carter in the winter number of 1961, after ten years. One dramatic episode in the history of the book collector, however, should be mentioned. Shortly after the appearance of the summer number in 1955, members of the board received without warning a cyclist-style document announcing that the journal had come to an end, that no more numbers would be issued, and the outstanding balance of subscriptions would be returned. John Hayward and I, greatly shocked by the abruptness of this announcement, determined that every effort must be made to circumvent it. With the help of Howard Nixon, a guarantee fund was raised by the generous and willing supporters of a small number of well-known bibliophiles on both sides of the Atlantic, and the immediate future of the journal was thus more completely assured than ever before. It must be said that from Ian's point of view, the book collector became more and more a pleasant toy to dine out on, and to astonish people with the fact that the creator of James Bond was at the head of the board of an erudite publication of this kind. Similarly, he delighted in throwing off references to his collection of milestone books, although, to be perfectly frank, and despite the fact that the first item under recreations in his Who's Who entry is first editions, he made no further addition to his collection and came to regard it more and more as an inflation hedge. For many years before his death, indeed, the books languished in a London depository, whence the distinguished selection borrowed for the Ipex exhibition had to be disinterred to be reinterred thereafter. More than once there was talk of selling the books as a collection, and each time I was asked for a revaluation, Ian would then multiply this figure by four and give this as the price at which he was prepared to sell. 
We had fierce, though friendly, arguments about this, in which he made fun of my protests against treating books like sand or sugar or any other merchandise. This he called sentimental and pretentious nonsense. Current sale-room practice suggests that he was right. In fact, he never did sell the books, and he left them in trust for his son, so that the collection is likely to remain intact for some years to come. He could be, as I often told him, the most exasperating, pig-headed creature in existence. He called me a short-sighted, small-minded Puritan. Our long friendship was strong and deep enough to withstand the worst we could say of each other, and it would be hard to say better of it than that. That was Percy Muir's article on Ian Fleming, who in fact launched the book collector the same year that he wrote Casino Royale, the first Bond novel. In 2017, we dedicated an entire issue to Ian's role in the world of books. The easiest way to read this is to subscribe at www.thebookcollector.co.uk and to access our spring 2017 issue through the digital archive. Our podcast for next week will be David Randall's article on the Lilly Library. It was Randall who negotiated the purchase of Ian's library after his death in 1964, and his books are one of the Lilly's most treasured collections.